technical issue there with one of the sources. I still cannot stream over to Twitter. I uh, gave it a shot again today. That's what I was doing there for those 10 seconds where I looked like I didn't know what I was doing, but I did know what I'm doing. It's Tuesday. It is February the 14th. It is Valentine's Day for those that celebrate Hallmark holidays. And it is episode 3248 of the Survival Podcast. Today we have an episode called Homesteading as a Future Proofing Strategy. I think this will be a good one. Um, I've watched a lot of things in this country and the world as a whole change over the almost 15 years that I've been doing the survival podcast. And in some ways, people had a little more impetus, even though they should have more now when I started than they do now. In 2008, soon after I started the show, we ended up in a deep recession, a housing crisis, and people were kind of crapping their pants with, oh, my God, is it going to be okay? And it was a recession that people were in touch with, okay? People were in touch with the fact there was a problem. Today, there's all these sorts of problems, but right now, anyway, for most people, the economy is still relatively good. We have massive layoffs starting. Uh, We have phony unemployment numbers because the unemployment numbers reflect today, not a month or two or three from now, a lot of the companies that are laying people off are required by law to do a 90-day notice over a certain percentage of their workforce. So those people are still employed for the next, you know, 90 days, uh, what have you. So there's a lot of that that's kind of playing voodoo with the numbers. And today, more than when I started, you want something, you order it, it shows up at your house. You want to go somewhere. You pull an app up on your phone, Lyft, Uber, whatever, and you, you go somewhere. And it, it it's so simplistic to live that way. And because it is, people tend to look at things like homesteading and think, well, why bother? Why should I worry about taking care of chickens? Even if eggs are $6 a dozen, I'll just go buy the eggs. Um, and, and honestly, when you look at the cost of eggs, they're not really expensive. It's just what we've come to expect. You start raising your own chickens. If you're buying feed, $6 a dozen, if you're selling your eggs for that, you're probably going broke. So there is this artificial world, artificial abundance. Quality of stuff's not that great, but it's there. It's it's easy to get your hands on. And because people in general right now, if they want a job, they have a job. You want a job right now, you have a job. And if you don't have a job, you don't really want a job. Everybody's still hiring, even while... Large corporations lay people off. So I think people have become disconnected with the reality that there's something to homesteading. And at the same time, there's more explosive growth in it than any other time before. You you have celebrity chefs like Guy Fieri. I I watch his show, and whenever he's doing his stuff like at the ranch or whatever, they always kind of show off the fact he's got his own chicken coops, his own gardens and stuff like that. Um, We have people that make huge incomes off of homesteading channels on YouTube, for instance. There's more interest than any time in history. And what it seems to me like what we have right now is a bifurcation. 
And it, it, it kind of falls in line with some of the predictions about the Great Reset, if you really think about it, that there will be people who don't move to the cities, who don't go all in on all the craziness and all of the high-density settlement plans and things like that, and just say the hell with this and live a little more like our grandparents. And then there are people that I think they are easily seduced by this idea that, you know, you can just cram people into these these high-density settlements and everybody can have everything they want and farming and food production. That's just something somebody else will do for us and we'll all eat our beyond, beyond you know, ridiculous fake meat and our crickets and the bugs and we'll be happy. And it really does see that we're, seem to me that we're moving into a place where people are kind of split on that mindset. And not everybody that would, we would call, like, let's say on our side of that argument is going to be a homesteader. It, it, but I'm really talking about does a person see value in it? Because there's also a lot of people that may live a little bit further out in the country. They may deal with their neighbors who are more homesteaders who have surplus, buy some local production. And, and at least they understand there's a value in what's going on. And then there's people that I think literally have thrown this entire idea completely away. That it's insanity that anybody would do this. And it's just another way that society seems very split to me in our current times. But one of the reasons that our forefathers homesteaded was because they knew things could go wrong. And they needed to be able to know that they had at least a baseline that they could depend on. I've heard a lot of people tell me, you know, Jack, I'd love to get into a lot of things you talk about, but I'm young and broke. Well, you have no excuse. So you have lots of potential for sweat equity. And a lot of this stuff can be done very cheaply to no money at all. You can dig a hole and put seeds in the ground. You can plant a garden. And I guess what bugs me about that mindset, and I've talked about this before, is when I was doing this when I was a kid, we didn't we didn't do it because we had money. We did it because we were broke. We did it because we were poor. By, by the poverty standards even of the time of the 1980s, my family was poor. I wouldn't use the word impoverished. Because I never felt that way. But if you just looked at what the income threshold was to be considered poor, we were poor. We did all these things because they were profitable. And I think what's caused a lot of confusion in the modern day is there's so many ways to spend a lot of money doing this stuff. And so many people selling ways to spend a lot of money doing this stuff. And some of it does require, if you want it to be long term, put in place some significant initial investment. But if you invested, let's say, just a round number off of nothing, thousand bucks in something. And over two years, it produced a thousand dollars of ROI. You got a thousand in, thousand out, you're you're par. But it's a system that's now going to function for 10, 20, 30 years. That's an intelligent investment. And so we're going to come at it from that standpoint today. Why we homestead? Some rules for happy homesteading. And how it is a marathon, not a sprint, and how it actually makes sense. And when we live in a world where I try to teach anyway how to live a better life if something – living a better life if, if times get tough or even if they don't. And you're sitting on the precipice of potentially some of the hardest times that, that, that most people have ever seen in their lives. Most people that listen to this show are not even old enough to remember the 70s, let alone what – our great-grandparents and grandparents went through during the Great Depression. 
or some really hard times before that that get lost in most American history courses. But we, we have the potential right now for a lot of things to go sideways. So I don't know that there has been a better time for people to take this approach with a mindset of, I'm going to be better off even if everything's okay. But if it isn't, I'm really going to be better off. That's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, the Wealth Steading Podcast with expert council member John Pugliano. John's been a member of this community since 2011. He's been on my expert council for about as long as I've had one. And uh, he's just a great guy. And I thought it would fit well to make him a sponsor for today's show because his concept of wealth steading is growing your wealth the way that you grow a garden, slow across time and time-proven ways. Very conservative, but very good at what he does. And he shares all of his knowledge with you guys with the Wealth Steading Podcast. And remember, you can catch the Wealth Steading Podcast on Fountain.fm. And keep sending John those sats. Uh, we had a pretty big debate about whether or not Fountain made sense for him. And every time I check, he's got more people sending him sats on Fountain. And I, I, I'm waiting to hear his response to all that in uh, November this year at TSP 2023. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. And I, I've said for years, and I'll keep saying it, and I think Bulk Ammo should put it right there, right under their logo, under BulkAmmo.com. You want BulkAmmo.com because a gun without ammo is an expensive club. So check out BulkAmmo.com, another long-term sponsor. I think that they came on board with us in 2013. So that's 10 years that they've been sponsoring the show. Lightning fast shipping, everything you're looking for shipped right to your door. It'll ship so fast. Sometimes when it shows up, you'll be like, I, what's here? Why is the, why is the postman here? I don't remember ordering anything. You'll be like, oh, that's right. I ordered my BulkAmmo.com order yesterday or the day before, and here is my ammo. And who wants to go to the store and deal with people when you're buying ammo if you can have it shipped to your door? All right. And also, remember, uh, BulkAmmo.com does do a discount for you guys that are members of the MSP. So let's dig into this. Let's start off with why do we homestead? I mean, why do it in the first place? Is it just because it's cool? Just because some cool-looking person on YouTube said I should do it or it's in vogue or I want to be an eco-hippie too or whatever? I think number one reason that we homestead is that we humans are cultivators. We are a horticultural species, meaning that we are a plant cultivating species. It's what we do. It's what we've done for about all of recorded history, and I believe quite a bit longer. I believe that even in the era that um, anthropologists and historians say humans were 100% hunter-gatherers, they don't know crap about really who we were and what we were doing back then. If you go back 20,000 years, any evidence of true cultivation would be wiped out by time and history. We know that during the Younger Dryas, that the sea levels came up so much as the Ice Age ended that most any coastal sediment would have been flooded and probably under the ocean, right, today, and, and 50, 100, 200 feet deep underwater today, some of these locations. You can just look up... Uh, coastlines prior to the end of the last ice age to see what I'm talking about. And this would include the flooding that happened along riverbanks and things like that. And humans at the time, of course, is going to follow the water and settle along water because it's an inherent need that we had that we couldn't just make it. Like we can make almost anything else we need. We can't make water. You either have or you don't, especially with the technology of 15, 20,000 years ago. So I think that humans have been 
cultivating plants one way or another for about as long as our brain has been developed to the way that we could do it. So since we've been modern humans, because the human that walked around 70,000 years ago was in every way as capable as you from a mental standpoint. They may not have had your education. They probably had a far better one in some ways. But there was no reason that they wouldn't notice, hey, this berry thing that we eat and tastes good, it grows better in this spot than that spot. What it needs is a little bit of sun, so let's clear out some trees. You've gone into cultivation. You've gone into forest gardening. And we know for a fact that long before what we think of as agriculture, uh, Native Americans, some of the earliest natives here, were burning fields and burning underbrush. And, and that was a form of cultivation. So I think that we just innately are a species that cultivates food and understands the value of what we call agriculture today, but I prefer to call horticulture. And I think, I think animal husbandry fits right in that. Earliest records indicate mankind domesticating the dog. And we didn't do that for food directly. Most most cultures don't view canines as a high-quality source of protein. But we did that because we had a co cooperative relationship with dogs for hunting and for defense. And we, we snapped to that pretty quick. So there's no reason that we wouldn't have also snapped to the fact that, hey, these big, slow things moving around out here, if we kept some where we wanted them, we wouldn't have to hunt them when we needed them. So animal husbandry and horticulture, I think, are far more ancient than we believe. So I think it's in our DNA. And I think it's the people that did it that survived and handed it down in their DNA to, to us today. I also think <clears throat> there's as much a recreational component to this as there is a desire for pro direct production. How many old ladies are out taking care of tomatoes every summer? They don't really need the tomatoes. Why do they do it? Because we get enjoyment out of it. When I walk around my property, I'm not even talking about doing the work now. I'm just talking about walking around my property. Like right now, I don't actually want to be doing this. I want to be out crushing biochar and charging it up with some compost tea that I made. I want to get done early today. So I started 30 minutes a little bit earlier. But beyond that, if I didn't have that to do, it's beautiful out. It poured rain. My swales are full. My ducks are swimming. My geese are starting to nest and, and, and lay. There's all kinds of things starting to grow. I even, unfortunately, have some fruit trees beginning to blossom, and hopefully a really heavy late frost won't knock the blossoms off them. But I want to take a walk right now on my property. My property, for me now, is a recreational retreat. Some of you guys have been here uh, several times, and some of you were here when I bought the place back in, like, 2013, 2014. And then you've been here as recently as, let's say, November. And the transformation of the landscape in a very harsh environment is breathtaking. It, it really is. And one of, the, one of the negatives, I think, about doing our workshops in, in November is all the trees have begun to drop and all of the abundance of, like, early fall or late spring are not here to be seen. And still, it's amazing. So I think there is a huge – and there's a value that we add – to our property. There is no doubt that if I sold my property today, it's worth a lot more than had I just mowed the lawn and left it the way that it was, because it was pretty bleak. It was pretty much a blank slate and a tough blank slate. 
So there, there's that as well. And then the quality of our food. I don't know about you guys, but I like to eat really good. I like to eat really well. And I like to eat seasonally. And I like to eat things that that I can't buy. I, I like, for instance, I'm about to start all my spring planting soon. And then for a couple months, I'll have nasturtiums through all my wicking beds and everything. And I like the leaves and the flowers in my food. I have never, in Texas anyway, gone to a farmer's market or something and saw a clamshell of nasturtium leaves and blossoms. And I, I don't know that they would last very long either. The blossoms probably longer than the green leaves. That's just one example. I like the fact that I've, I've done so much to improve fertility here that I can walk around my property, you know, about another couple of weeks, it'll start where all the wild garlics, so I've a dozen variety probably of wild garlics that pop up here. And instead of pulling them out of the ground, I'm just plucking the little bulblets off of them as they go to seed and leaving some behind to continue propagation. That's, that's a pretty amazing quality of food to eat. Or the basil that we grow that you can't buy that's the size of your hand. The other you know, edible flowers that we'll have coming soon as the locusts begin to blossom and things like that. So by doing all these things across time, I've enabled my family and myself to eat food that's better than anything we can buy. But at the same time, some of what we eat, you can't buy. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. Um, Lisa, I'm not sure why you lost visual, but I think it's only you. Everybody else seems good, and I see myself. If anybody else has problems seeing me, let me know. Um, but Green Country says wild violets. Yeah, that's another example. When I lived in the Northeast, you know, fiddlehead ferns and, 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 and leeks and miner's lettuce uh, were early crops that we used to go out and, and pick. But if you live there, like if I knew what I know now, I probably would have been cultivating some of that stuff on, on my grandparents' property. So there's just a quality level that we can't we can't deny. And if that is the case, then then it's something we should at least consider because I'm able to eat better than a lot of people who have just as much money as I do. And I, w- I should say I'm able to eat better more regularly, like on a continuous ongoing basis because of the lifestyle integration that we've done. I have some rules for happy homesteading, though, because a lot of people get into homesteading and then they really end up miserable. And I think the number one rule I can give you is one project at a time. Finish what you started, bolt it down, and then go do the next one, Right. There's a lot of stuff that I need to get done by spring, and I will break this rule myself to a degree because I'll be pieces and parting things to try to get them done when they need to be done. But they're little projects. I'm talking about a big project. I want chickens, right, and I want rabbits. Pick one. Pick one young man or young lady. Pick it and build everything you need including the system of management that you're going to use until you're comfortable with it. Until you do not get up in the morning and think, oh, damn, what do I do? Until you don't spend at least two days a week fixing something that wasn't quite right. Get it done. And so let's say you did the chicken. So now we need housing. We need a way to manage their movement, whether you're going to free range, whether you're going to tractor, whatever it is you're going to do. You need... And yeah, Eddie is saying this advice is so hard to adhere to. It is. But trust me, and I'm going to talk about why you want to do this beyond it works 
in just a second because it, it will pay you huge dividends if you do it this way. So you, you want to have everything that you need to take care of those chickens. And if you want to do chickens and ducks, you know, what you're going to do, like I run on chicken, ducks, and geese. I don't do any extra work because I have three different species of birds. I would still say, initially, pick one. You'll still be better off because you'll be able to figure out things with less variables. See, one of the things we want to do with this is I don't like variables. This is why if you've ever watched me present in a professional presentation with like a PowerPoint deck or something like that, you never see me actively doing shit on somebody's website, like looking things up or all. You see screen capture. You never see me playing videos in the middle of a presentation. You'll use, I'll use screen capture and I'll do the presentation. Those are variables. Variables cause problems. And you, whenever you're doing anything, even something that seems like you have unlimited time to do, you have a time budget. And the more variables you have, the more crap can go wrong and the more that you have to fix. So when it comes, and, and the other thing is the more variables you bolt down in that system, the more you'll be able to have that thing taken care of and you're actually going to rely on it for the next thing. So for instance, if you have chickens and you come up with everything you need, the chickens need what? They need water and feeding. Now, someone here said that they have chickens and rabbits. They got rabbits first and then chickens. That's fine too. Totally fine. But if you have rabbits, they need feeding and they need water. So you might realize, you know what, since I want to make sure that I can water my chickens out where my chicken coop is, and right now there's no little magical thing called a pipe that goes under the ground and takes water to that location, I should put that in so I'm not carrying a bucket of freaking water every day. Then you might, when you got your rabbits, think, how do the rabbits and the chickens go together? And gee, the whole issue about getting water to the location is already done. Now I don't have to do that. If I'm doing chickens, I'm probably doing a composting system. How can I make the rabbit's waste go into the chicken's compost and start function stacking? As I build things one at a time, this makes a lot of sense. The other side of that, though, is because we do practice function stacking and design considerations, right, in permaculture, you should figure out all the core things that you know you want to do, not just maybe someday. But when it's a core thing, like I know I'm going to want chickens and rabbits, you need to be thinking when you set up the first one, where will the second one integrate? And then follow the rule. Don't jack around with it until you finish the first part. And and that's the thing, you know, like Eddie's saying, he got to build the fodder system too, mixing his own chicken feed, right? All of these things are so much easier if we have that system bolted down tight and then we add the next system. Yeah. Next, start with something easy and fun. Don't start with something incredibly complicated. Don't start with something that's going to take you four months to even be ready to, like, pull the trigger on it. You know, if you think about one of the reasons I like chickens as a starter animal, it's not that hard. You need a place for them to sleep at night where they're protected from predators. You need some type of control flow so they don't go to places and do things and cause problems where you don't want them. You need that. Right. You need to be able to feed them and water them. And you need like a way that you're going to handle like collection of eggs, calling of birds and things. like. It's pretty simple. You can easily get that all done in 30 days, even if you're brand super newbie. 
and they don't need a Taj Machikin hall, right? If you're talking four birds, you can have a coop that you can build out of a few sheets of plywood and some insulation and some other materials that's not very big at all. Maybe it's mobile, maybe it's not. If you ever decide you want to expand your operation, that little mobile coop still has a use case against your larger coop. Like, And if you already have something, like when I moved in here, I have a 12 by 16 uh, tough shed. My chickens, ducks, and geese live in there. I probably wouldn't have bought that out of the gate, but it was in a perfect location. It was an old goat barn. I threw a floor in and I used it. But you got to do something that you're going to enjoy and that you know you're going to get done. You know, and that might not be animals. Animals move around. The animals die. Like just a basic wicking bed kitchen garden might be the way to start. But whatever it is, do the thing. Get the thing done. Your first year of gardening, if you go buy all your plants, you either buy plants or direct sow seed in the garden. I don't care. Installing a garden, dealing with your irrigation, right? Getting your soil right. These are all freaking skill sets. Each one is a skill set. And if we, if we, if we phase into it, you know, next, the second season, you can worry about developing seed starting capabilities and, and managing your own seeds and things like that. And you'll get better as you go. We all do. Like, experience is one of the greatest teachers, right? The best two teachers are direct experience and indirect experience. So if you learn from somebody with no experience, you're, you, you probably ain't learning right, okay? To quote one of my English teachers back in, back in third grade, you ain't learning right. I ain't learning you right if I don't have experience. And she used to say that just to jack around with us and make us go, oh, you're not saying it right. Yeah, well, that's because I taught you already. That's what she would say. So you need either to have the experience of learning or when you're learning from somebody, they're a person with prior experience. And so a lot of that is going to have to come no matter how much book learning, YouTube learning, your experience is going to directly translate into your skill set across time. And then a fundamental reality, my property is different than yours and your property is different than mine. And Ecomouse's property is uh, different than Mitchell's property who's different from Lila's property. You'll adapt to your own needs. You have a different budget, a different time budget, not just economic budget, a different size property. So all of this will come in time if you practice one project at a time and starting with something easy. Set and respect your budget. You know, I mean, pick the thing and then budget for it. And if you're like, I don't really know which one to do first, and they both seem kind of equal in importance and in how excited you are, budget them both. You may realize, like, I don't actually have the budget to do project A right. I do have the budget to do project B right. Money just made your decision for you. And if that project actually has a financial ROI, then you can build into it. This is what this project should save me once it's turned up. And I need to track that and I need to make sure it's happening. And if it's not, I'm not done yet. Unless I was wrong. If it has the potential to put that much money back in our pocket so we're not buying this crap from the store, let's say, and it's going to save us 10 bucks a week, then we need to make sure that we're skimming that 10 bucks a week, that excess cash flow that we now have, into our next project startup fund. If we're strapped for cash, we need to think that way. But you have to set a budget and respect the budget. We're not restoring a 120-year-old house on a TV show for non-reality television. We're not going to pull down a wall and see knob and tube wiring or the fire marshal's going to come in and say this window can't be here anymore. We're building a chicken coop. We're building a, a, a garden bed, what have you. So we should be able to sit down, plan out the project, 
and then determine a bill of materials, complicated word for a list of shit you need, right? And if nothing else, you don't have to buy it. You can go to, let's say, Home Depot, Lowe's, their website, look up all the stuff you need over your quantities by 10%. That's a standard estimator's procedure. When I used to do like estimates for like cabling jobs and outside plant construction, we would always throw a 10% material overage and a 10% labor overage into the project, right? Throw that in there and there's a number. And now you know what your monetary budget is. Then look at each step and make a time budget. And it's important you do this. Let's say that your time budget was 20 hours into getting everything ready for your chickens of actual work and things that you're going to do. I don't care what the number is. I'm just picking a random number to make this clear. So now you go do it. Track your time. You come in at 30 hours. You didn't lose your ass in a bid to a competitor, right? You didn't You didn't go bankrupt from it. You're going to spend the extra 10 hours. But what did you just learn? That your time budget estimate was off by 30%. So when you do your next project and you make your time budget, you're going to do a better job of estimating your time. You're also going to get quicker because you're going to learn how to do things more. And again, if you do this stuff in the right order, a lot of things you do for project A reduces what you need for project B. And hopefully project B reduces what you need for Project C. And you begin to get a cascading effect. It's kind of like paying your debt off. Pay the littlest debt first as fast as possible, then take all that money and apply it to the next debt and all that and apply it to the third debt. And when you pay the last biggest debt off, you actually go faster. It's kind of like that in a reverse roundabout way if you do things the way that I'm talking about. Again, the other thing is you might think you had estimated the money right, and let's say you estimated it was $500 for the project and you end up spending $650. Well, if it's an important project, you're off by $150. Assuming you have the money, you're probably going to spend it. You're going to get the items you need. But you also just educated yourself, and now you've become a better monetary estimator. So you're training yourself to be your own project manager. Any good farmer, any good rancher is a good project manager. If you're not a good project manager and you start a farm, you will go broke within two to three years. Actually, you'll go broke from day one, but you may survive long enough to do yourself more damage. You've got to be a solid. And that's pr pretty much all businesses. You really need to be good at project management to run a business. And so you want to start running your life and your homestead like a little mini business without all the other crap that comes with being in a business that you maybe don't want to do. Next. Build management into your daily activities. When you're planning this out and you're saying, I want to put my chicken coop over here. Why? Because your wife said it's okay. You might have to live with that design restriction. Maybe not. Does she know it's not going to stink? Does she know that, you know, you're going to have a rooster and he'll crow a little bit in the morning, but if he's inside the coop and you're inside the house, you really don't hear him or care. Or maybe it actually would be kind of cool. Like you can, might be able to get around that design restriction and you might not. But you do need to think about why are you putting it there? If you're going to have other animals, how will that impact that decision? You're going to have to go there every day. Is there opportunity between where you are and where you have to go to integrate some other chore in your life? And maybe the chicken coop would be just as far from the house if we moved it over here. But maybe there's a reason that we would want to do that. Do we have an existing structure like I did? Well, then you may settle on it. Because it's a lot of work to move a structure the size I'm talking about. Because it's probably not where I would have located my animals had that structure not already been there. I would have probably actually located it completely on the other side of the property where my main kitchen garden is. So you, you want to think about how your daily activities, how you can 
maximize your energy return of investment so that if I'm going to get up in the morning and go outside and go let the birds out, how do I connect my systems? How do I manage my kitchen waste stream in regards to that? If I need to feed the animals every day, do I want to feed them where they live? Maybe you don't. Something I learned over time, when I stopped feeding my chickens and ducks where they lived, they spent more time out doing work. But the other thing was my rodent problem between the cats, the dogs, and that one move pretty much disappeared. The rats that we had, well, you want the food? Guess what? There's no really great, nice, warm, comfortable chicken coop to sleep under, right? And you can just come right out a little bit and eat and run back in your hole. No, 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 no. Jack put the food out in the middle of the field. You have to run the gauntlet of Dana Cat and Fox Cat, the three dogs. And if you're a mouse, by the way, the geese will even eat you. I've seen geese swallow a mouse right down. So then all of a sudden, it's not so convenient anymore. So some of this you're going to have to improvise as you go. But try to think about how to integrate your lifestyle. And the larger your property, the more important this is. If you have a relatively small property, there's not a whole lot of distance difference between the back corner and the, the other back, like the left and right back corner, east and west back corner. But if you have a 10-acre property, there's a lot of difference there. So the larger the property, the more important designing your zone one, zone two close-in proximity systems are and being very mindful about where you put what you put where. Um, and then on that, notice that when you come to my property, maybe some of that advice looks like, well, Jack does not, you know, do exactly what he says. I have an educational property. Educational properties are great for learning lots of different systems, but I have more systems here then I really want, okay? I don't really want as many systems. I did it so when people come here, they can look at it, see it, touch it, and feel and see if it's right for them. And I've actually been decommissioning some stuff because it's got me a little bit too spread out. I'm only on three acres. So don't necessarily try to emulate everything you see and certainly don't try to catch up with somebody who's been doing it for 10 years and you just started yesterday. Don't even think that way. Pick a thing, do that thing, follow the budget, do something fun, and build management into your daily activities. And, and you will end up with a cascading effect. Because here's what you're really doing, and I think it's very important to understand what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to build a system that's largely self-productive and self-regulating across time. And you want the work you do today to pay itself back across time for a long time to come. As you garden, your soil should get more fertile. You should spend less time worrying about fertility and diseases and more time just planting stuff and picking stuff. That's why I've become such a big fan of biochar because I've, I've, I've formed an understanding that when done right, it's a permanent thing that actually gets better with age. And that's what we need to be doing with everything. We need to be thinking about automation. Anything that can be automated probably should be automated. We probably need to develop things like a manual. How does everything work? That way, if you have to turn it over to somebody for a week or two, there's a manual. Maybe you make little videos that go with the manual. So the manual is electronic, and the manual is how do I reset this timer? Click here to see, and there's a little two-minute video that shows you how to do it. This might actually benefit you. We tend to think, well, if I did it once, I can do it again. And you can, but how long will it take you? What if you did a thing five years ago? 
and it hasn't needed to be redone for five years. Is it just possible that you'd look at it and go, hmm, don't remember how I did this, especially if you only did it once or twice. So every function that's necessary to fix, repair, improve that's on your property and part of your system shouldn't be some way documented for yourself and certainly for others. Let's talk about some of my favorite projects for homesteaders. Things that, like, when you're trying to pick that first one, what are some of the things that you can do? Backyard birds, I think, is one of the easiest entry points because almost everybody eats eggs. Feed's readily available. The information that you need to successfully do it is readily available. And it's it's not difficult to do. And there's tons of options. You can do ducks. If you need to have real quiet animals, you can do muscovy ducks. You can do chickens. And you can do chickens without a rooster, and you'll have more quiet if that is something that you need to do. But what I love about backyard birds is they fully integrate with a composting system. And remember, I said, do one project. Well, now Jack's saying do birds and do composting. No, I'm not. I'm saying that a composting component within your poultry system is part of your poultry system. I'm saying that if you have birds that live in a place and you have kitchen waste that those birds are going to use, you should build the infrastructure and think about the flow process that makes that integrated when you do that as your first project. And if you do that, then you'll you'll really start to see, oh, look, I put the stuff here. Maybe I can put some sort of shade over the place that the birds use the kitchen waste. And once I do that, maybe there's something I can plant on there that's actually feed for the birds, or maybe it's a it's a monetary yield. And then the next project is really simple because I've got this nutrient flow from where the birds eat. And if I plant something birds don't eat but has some sort of a monetary yield, something of some value, maybe some sort of a cut flower crop or something that I like to eat like, I don't know, if you lived in the Northeast and it was much cooler summer, those nasturtiums I grow for a couple of months, you could grow all summer long. And they there's trailing nasturtiums. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's, who knows, right? There's some, and, and does that mean you should do that? No, it just is an example. But having a core of a backyard poultry flock, to me, it, it, it slays so many things. I have coals for meat. I have an ongoing yield of eggs for protein and fat, and I have a processing mechanism for waste, and I have a manure source for compost, right? So it makes a great core first project, in my opinion. Next up, a kitchen garden, and you got to love wicking beds here. This is something to really look at because most people that are doing this today, they still have full-time jobs. And if you live in a climate where it doesn't regularly rain to the point where you don't have to worry about irrigation, you have to worry about irrigation. And when we're irrigating constantly from the surface, and there's nothing wrong with doing it when it's done right, but if we excessively irrigate from the surface, we literally start leaching and washing mineral and nutrient out of our soil. Same problem they have in the rainforest. They have so much rain that many rainforests are effectively a wet desert, which is very hard to get your head around. But they're not deficient in moisture. They're deficient in nutrient and mineral because the soils are so thin and fine and washed away by the continuous rain, continuous fall of humus, continuous acidification of the soil. We can do that to ourselves just as well as nature can do it to a rainforest by excessive irrigation. If we do wicking beds, we're never, except when there's a rain event, washing through the soil. We're wicking up. We can fertigate from them. So a basic kitchen garden built on 
in-ground beds, raised beds, wicking beds, whatever you like. I just encourage you to consider wicking beds. Because once you have that, you have a tremendous battery potential to be able to not like I'm sick this week. I have extra work this week. The kid got in trouble and I have to do more driving because they're in in-school suspension, whatever it is. You can you can now know I don't have to worry about watering this week. The system will take care of it. And if you automate your topping off of your wicking beds, you're in even better shape. So that would be something, you know, that I would say to, to look at as an early thing as your your basic Garden bed. By the way, when I did my recent series, the four pillars of homesteading, th- that was the two primary pillars, wasn't it? A garden and some backyard livestock. I don't want chickens. Maybe you want rabbits. Some people love rabbits because they're great meat. They're an incredible fertility aid. But then some people don't want to kill rabbits, and rabbits pretty much have a single product for consumption, meat. They don't make an egg. So you have to make these decisions based on your family, your life, and what you want to do. Next up, I, I really do think, even though I said, like, there's no shame in buying all your start started plants in your first season as gardener. Long term, long term, I don't think it makes a good ROI to go out and spend $3 on a single broccoli plant. That doesn't make any economic sense whatsoever, especially if you live in a climate like mine, where if you did that, you might get one good head of broccoli off of it, and you're not going to get side shoots all year long. It doesn't make sense to go out and spend $4.99 for a tomato plant. Again, if you have to do it in your first season to develop the skill set, get the garden in place and take one thing off your plate, great. But long term, you need to set up some system for seed starting because seed starting then leads to another skill set, seed saving, which means we start to build land races into our seeds. And if we if we set up a system where we're starting our own seeds, it is really simple then to add into that system. And at the end of this season, I'm going to let certain things go to seed. I'm going to collect and label my seed. And I'm just going to kind of move it to the back of the line. And next year, when I start my seeds again, I'm going to use my own. And see, now you're starting to see how if you're methodical. So a person this time of year could go ahead and get those birds set up, plant out their garden, and have their garden ready to go by spring, buy their plants. Now I've got birds, I've got a garden, I've got a waste stream handling system, and all I have to do at the end of that season is maybe if I buy plants, I make sure I buy heirloom varieties and I save some of the seeds, at least the stuff that does well. The other thing is I can also, with that garden system, I don't have to necessarily start all my seeds indoors. There's only certain plants that we need to do that with. Right. Most of the plants that we plant, we can direct. sow, and if we can direct, sow, we probably should. As long as we get everything right out there and our seeds don't bake in the uh, in the ground. And Bonnie, thank you for the four ninety nine super sticker chat. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so. Moving on from there, building a solar heater, I think, is a really great project and it's it's a nice short duration project. And it's a good project for you homeschoolers to do with your kids. They can use it as a science project. And there's a lot of ways to build solar heaters. We can build a solar heater that pushes heat through a a solar dehydrator if we wanted to. We can build a solar heater that's basically a box with a tube that goes in a a window 
on a sunny side of our home and helps offset our heating costs. We can build a solar heater if we have some sort of a pond or aquaponic system that heats water. There's a lot of options there, but it's a really great one because now we've think about what we've done. We've started off with food. We now have some form of livestock. We have something to deal with our food waste. We have a composting system now in some way that's feeding back into our garden. That's also providing us food. We've got food fairly well a base established anyway. We're going to have food now coming off the homestead. Maybe it doesn't pay all of our, all of our food bill or grocery bill, but we have something. Now, if we start going into something like a solar heater, we start to address the energy concern. So what are our primary survival needs? Food, water, shelter, energy, health and sanitation, and security. So now we're moving on to another one of our survival needs. And if you have a homestead, it should be addressing your survival needs of nothing else. So something like a solar heater. We also need to worry about now, like we start growing food. Maybe our first year, we don't have a tremendous surplus of food. We, we throw in a couple, like maybe a, a four by eight raised bed or two. And so we have a little more food than normal. And maybe we have some stuff that we need to worry about. As far as like we could just do some flash freezing uh, where we blanch our vegetables and then we freeze them. And then but it's, there's plenty of room for it all. But if we get better at this, we're going to get to what we have a significant surplus of food. So maybe our next project is something like learning how to can food. And that's not a hard thing. I have a show on using electric canners for canning food for the busy family. So you can like an ongoing basis. So you're only making with the uh, the carry canner I recommend only making four can four quarts at a time, but most of the production that, that people do, that's plenty. That's a lot. And if you're bringing it in, processing it, canning it, and doing that once a week or so, instead of doing it all at the end of the season like my grandmother did with two giant canners out on the porch using propane burners because she didn't want the house to be too damn hot in her words. And she would say other things in Ukrainian that I'm pretty sure were curse words, even though she claimed to never curse. You can just tell when somebody's cursing in a foreign language sometime about the heat. You're doing it a little at a time across time because maybe you're not like my grandmother, who was a stay at home homekeeper at that point, And that was part of her job for the homestead. Maybe you have to go to work. So being able to spend a half hour on Saturday, throw some cans in an electric can or hit a button and walk away from it and put them away when you get time. Maybe that works better. So learning and teaching yourself food preservation, maybe canning would be the way to go or freeze drying or whatever it is for you. You know, there, there's there's a lot to to do. Install rainwater catchment. Well, now, see, doesn't it make sense that, that at this point in the game, we might want to start looking at the security need of water? We have rainwater catchment. We have a means of irrigation. We have a means of providing water to our animals, and we have a backup form of water for ourselves. And Kelly here, this is interesting. Kelly says, I learned to can first. was the only way we could afford to eat meat the last couple of years. Crazy expensive chicken and beef here. I don't care what order you do this in. And I think that's awesome. I think you should take something that, you know, and you can learn to can on a weekend. You need a canner. You need jars, rings, and lids, and a recipe. That's it. So some of these things are layups. And even though I'm saying kind of take your time one at a time, some of these things fit real well into that. The, the, the problem would be you're getting really close to gardening season. You have your gardens half built. 
and you're taking a weekend off to can and you're buying food to can, maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe it does. It's, you know, did it rain that weekend? Well, now we can use that as a rainy day project as well. And we can keep building, never wasting time, always building our skill set, right? Um, you know, another really cool project is thinking about building some native natural habitat on your property, property for wildlife and pollinators and things like that. A lot of that, if you have the right habitat, that might be as simple as throwing some a good seed mix along some edges and borders and, and, and not cutting it back or putting in small pond systems or something like that just to attract dragonflies and, and, and bees and other pollinators because they need a water source. So creating some sort of natural space, natural habitat for the, the critters on your property. And, you know, if you have a big property, that, that, might be an, that might be one of the best opportunities you have. You know, putting in an orchard that is really designed during mass drop to attract white-tailed deer and saying, that's my livestock right there. If you've got the property and the location and the opportunity, that might be a hell of a lot better of an ROI than keeping pigs. Because all you have to do is shoot them and process them, and they mostly take care of themselves. And if you've learned to can, then we could take some of the surplus meat and can that, or we can freeze dry that. I, I had a guy, I remember when I first started doing this podcast, you know, this was way back in the day, 08, 09. He wrote me a letter and said, gardening doesn't make any sense to me at all. It doesn't make any sense. And I, that's all he said. And so I emailed him back. I said, why? He said, last year I tried part planting a garden. And I had to shoot seven deer right over my garden. And I barely got anything out of my garden. I said, Dude, you have a deer garden. I would love a deer garden. I would trade all my jalapenos and tomatoes to shoot seven deer over my garden. I, if I had the ability to attract deer to my location like that, I would probably actually plant a deer garden. I would plant all things I could for deer, and then I would harvest deer as I needed them within the boundaries of the law, right? Because here in Texas, that's a lot of meat because I can get a license. My wife can get a license. Where I live, that's 10 deer. I'd, I'd have to do an awful lot of work to offset that with, you know, running small pigs or something like that. So really think about what is the advantage you have. And this is all this I say to help you out if you want to grow where you're planted or you want to find something else and go there. Because there's a lot of people that you start looking at all this and start feeling overwhelmed. Well, how can you simplify based on your choice in land? Honest to God, if I if I had if I didn't have certain other restrictions in my life and we all make our own decisions here, my family, my grandchildren, stuff, I'd rather own 10 acres bordering permanently forested land and do all my homesteading shit on about one acre. And harvest deer and squirrel and rabbit and stuff like that for everything else, I, 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 that to me would be the easy button. because when I'm 75, I don't know how good I'm going to be digging a hole. But I guarantee you, I'm still going to be able to skin a deer. I promise you. So think about how you can leverage the opportunity that you have. Because I, I know I've met people that are like, I don't really think my land works for, for just about anything. I'm like, well, you put a pond there, you put fish in the pond, you're, you're done for protein. You throw a deer feeder with a deflector on it and feed your fish, you're good. You got wildlife running all over here. Maybe you put in a little couple wicking beds out in the front where the sun hits. 
and call it a day and you're good. Do you want to have some chickens or ducks running around? Fine, but you don't need to at that point. And so, you know, or, you know, everything's shady. Well, somebody here mentioned already, if you're in the right climate, then you've got mushrooms either to forage or to improve. I mean, there's, uh, and grow your own. There's so many opportunities. And it's important that one, when we're assessing a property, we see the opportunity. But another thing, and people are really bad at this, is recognizing the opportunity you have where you already are. Way, way back before I even did TSP, I had this little 14 foot John boat and I wanted a bigger boat, a more expensive boat. And I didn't know that I would use it enough. And since starting TSP, I bought and sold the boat, which tells you, no, I wouldn't use it enough. But it was what I, I remember thinking about it and finally saying, what is everything you hate about this boat? I didn't like that I couldn't mount and control a trolling motor from the front. It's much better than a trolling motor in the back for the type of fishing I do. I didn't like that there was no deck, no storage. I didn't like I was always tripping over everything. So I built plywood decking. I put cheap outdoor rated carpet down. I built storage into it. I built a front mount for a trolling motor, put the trolling motor on there with a long hand tiller so I could sit in the center of the boat and balance it when I was by myself. And I turned that boat into something really awesome because I stopped worrying about what it didn't have. And I said, what do I want? How do I get there? And I think that's a big part of how to look at your property and how to look at potential property as well. And don't short sight yourself on the fact that you are a human being and you do age and you're going to get older. So when you're building all this stuff and you're putting sweat equity and labor into it, it should be done to the aim of reducing that same thing in the future. You should build the most energy efficient systems you can. And I'm not talking energy efficient like uh, saving polar bears or something. I'm talking about human energy efficient. If I put things that I need to maintain on a daily basis close to my house, I'll do it. If I build my pathway so that when I'm going from one place that I have to go to another place every day, along with tasks there, I'll do it. And it won't seem a lot like work. And if you have really harsh summers like we do, then you kind of build Darth into your gardening. So my garden systems I build are designed to produce a lot of stuff for me in the spring into early summer and then produce a lot of food for me from early fall till right up about the time we do our workshop. And by then I'm pretty much done. And summer I've built enough automation into the system and I'm adding more this year to basically just keep things alive during that period and whatever harvest we get, we get. And when I looked at extending my, um, my winter growing, I realized that it was a lot of work for a very short period of time, and it was easier just to run a little bit of hydro upstairs in one of the extra bedrooms and just grow some lettuces and some spinaches and some basil. And that's all I needed during that period of time because everything else had already been put up, and it was more than my grandparents had. They didn't even do that. They did jack squat in the winter. Right about now is to be when my grandfather was building a compost pile in the bottom of the coal frame so that he could start his seeds and have the, the, the residual heat of the compost. That would be about right now. And he would have done his last work in the garden about September with us living in Pennsylvania. And that's when dove season started. And in between, he didn't do jack shit. And it, I think there's some wisdom in that too. How do you build shutdown time in your life? One of the things I love about poultry as a livestock for meat is I can do a meat run eight to 16 weeks, depending on what kind of bird I'm running somewhere in there, process the birds. I have my little laying flock and my little you know, reproduction flock when I want more, but I'm done. 
I, and I'm not going to do that. I'm like, I'm not going to let myself set that harvest of birds to be two weeks before Christmas. I want to harvest those birds mid spring, late spring at the latest or somewhere in early fall where the weather's nice. And it's not going to be hard on me outside doing the work for a day or two. For me, I'm going to take my birds and get them processed. So I, I really don't personally care. I'll pay $4 a bird. I, I got somebody that will do it. It's totally worth it to me. They'll do it perfectly. And, and my time's worth more than that. But if I had to do it myself, I would think a lot more about when I'm going to have to do that work. I want it to be a nice time of, of year to do it. I don't want it to be a time when the flies are going crazy. I want to think about all that. And, 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 and Bonnie right here says, sounds very nice. I thought I said, I thought I saw the word efficient there. So I missed that. Um, but efficient is what we're after is efficiency. My final thoughts on this. Today, we have more opportunity than ever in this space. We know so much more. There's so many things that my grandfather, if I would have explained it to him, if somehow I had known what the future would bring or I'd known technologies that we didn't know about, even some very traditional things back in the 80s, he wouldn't even have got it. Because he was an old man set in his ways. They'd done the same thing every year, the same way, and they knew they could rely on it. And there wasn't an Instagram. There wasn't a YouTube. There wasn't a Facebook. There wasn't all these ways to share information. There wasn't the ability for somebody that's developed something into a really great system to put together a simple ebook and you can, you can read it on Kindle Unlimited or buy it for three bucks. None of that existed. And so not only didn't we have as much of information, we didn't have the proof and the use case scenarios. So what I mean today is when somebody says, well, I read biochar doesn't work and I can go on YouTube and find a hundred different people that did a hundred different ways showing their results. I don't really care about the one Eeyore, right? In fact, I've actually figured out why Eeyore was right. It didn't work because you did it wrong. And I know what wrong means now. And so we've never had that until like the last 20 years have we ever had that. And there's more of it now than there was when I breached this subject back in 2009. It, it's, it's a way better time to do this. The other side is every day more and more of the doors close. The cost of property continues to go up. The ability for people to make changes in their lives individually becomes more complicated. When I was young, I didn't get this. I was like, man, look at all the people around me that have their life established. They have so many things I don't. And I didn't realize the number one thing that I had, freedom. I could have made a decision to go anywhere and do anything I wanted with very minimal consequences. Flash forward, you know, 10 years, and I'm in my late 20s. I've got a son stepson that I've, I've stepped in and fulfilled the role of the father. I've got a wife. I've got a full-time job. I got a mortgage payment on a house I really didn't want, but it worked for us at the time. So I bought it. I got a boss, I got a quota, right? Like at that point, if I decided, Hey, you know what I want to do is go be a hippie and live up on Paul Wheaton's uh, Dukeville. It was out of the cards. It was impossible. And so as we age, we kind of go through a cycle of we have freedom and less freedom and more money. And then hopefully toward our elder years, we have more freedom again. And hopefully we keep some of the money that we've earned and invested along the way. 
But the honest truth is the people that are in their late 20s to mid-30s to early 40s, you have the greatest opportunity today because you can get remote work, for instance, and then have a little bit more freedom about where you live. And then don't forget, um, I really think that this is going to be more and more attractive to people, and at least for a time, the right properties are going to become harder to get and more expensive to get your hands on. Because when you look at somebody that's put the time and effort in to improve a property, they don't want to go anywhere. You know, I said I'd rather have 10 acres and only focus on an acre and shoot deer over my garden or whatever. And in some levels I would. But do you know what it's going to take to get me out of here now after everything I've put into this place? Dynamite or somehow coming into a windfall of $100 million. It's going to be something like if I can have Jackistan, we'll talk. And uh, G. Johnson, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. I really appreciate that. And Eka Mouse says, 100 watching. There's actually more than that, but that's, I guess we can see on YouTube, Eka Mouse. 60 likes, that is on YouTube. Smash that like button if you're getting any value from Jack's session today and make that algorithm get some needed PT for this fat room. Yeah, please do. And if you don't, the Eka Mouse will have rage with you. She will be in trouble. You will see the fangs of the mouse are quite dangerous. So make sure you like this, share this. And if you're not a subscriber, you should be. And if you are a subscriber, right next to the bell is a little notification thing. Hit that so that every time I go live or upload new content, you get it. With that, and if you're listening on audio, I guess none of that matters. But, you know, if you have a YouTube account, consider doing that too because maybe you can catch a live stream like this. Remember that you can always catch these live streams by going to tspclive.com. tspclive.com will have the next coming live stream or the last one if I haven't updated it yet. So you can see all the different ways that you can uh, partake. But, yeah, just finishing up there, I think that it's a better time than ever in some ways, but there's also some doors closing on opportunity because it is best to start with the most cherry-picked property you can get, and they're getting harder and harder to come by. And honestly, I, I, I know I say this all the time, and when you, when you have the thing that you're saying is the best, I know people have a tendency to go, yeah, he says that because. Like, people will say, well, you said the, like, the best backyard bird is Muscovy ducks, and you have Muscovy ducks. Well, I have them because they're the best. It's the other way around. The urban-rural fringe is the place where opportunity meets freedom. And it's exactly where I live. And having lived fully remote in a remote mountain property in Arkansas, lived fully in the suburbs, having lived at one point in my life fully in like the urban apartment space and having grown up kind of in, in, in the hill country of Pennsylvania in the swamps of Florida, splitting my childhood, I've lived in a lot of different options. And I have to tell you, when it comes to being able to have access to resources and people and shopping and all that other, you know, I don't like to shop, but my wife does. It keeps her happy. It makes me happy. Yeah. Like, it's not just about what I want. It's about what my family wants. But I like to eat well. And not only do I like to eat like an amazing jerk chicken salad that I cook on my grill for my own chicken and all my Fords that I have coming in about the next 30 days. It's awesome. I love that. But I also like to go to nice places to eat. The problem with where I grew up in, in, in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, there ain't any. I bet there still aren't, right? Not, not the kind of level I'm talking about. I also like the ability to take my surplus and sell it. Well, having a metroplex of over 6 million people just over there 
It does, I don't care that the person had to drive 40 minutes to get here. They'll do it. But the reason that I have, with that being the case, the reason I have enough customers is because there's enough people that even a small portion thereof that will do that, they're available to sell product into. And if you had to ask me what I think the, the, the properties that will increase the most in value across time right now are, they are urban, rural fringe properties for all the reasons I just gave you. You have access to the things, but you, you stay out of the nonsense. And especially if you can find like the, the trifecta there is you got urban rural fringe. You've got a reasonably decent population in the urban part, in the suburban part, not a high crime rate, not some psychopathic government, not Seattle, not LA, not that crap, right? You've, you've got, You've got those things. And on top of it, you've got no or low restrictions. No or low restrictions. So where I live, I have zero risk. I have actual physical restrictions. Nobody anywhere tells me there's anything that I can't do here. That, that, is, that is incredibly valuable. But if, even if it was low. It was low restriction environment, no HOA, no POA, no onerous government from the county level or city level. That's the way to go. And man, you know, if you just look at the growth of homesteading channels and things like that, this is what people, or let's just, I don't like to say this is what people, because that means everybody. And I don't like to use the term everybody. There are a tremendous number of people now that they want to live the life we were talking about today. And this is the cherry picked property, urban, rural, fringe, low to no restrictions and a decent urban environment, you know, that's beyond the fringe where you can go downtown and walk from one restaurant to one bar and not where you're going to get mugged in the process. Right. Or not deal with people, homeless people crapping in the street or on the, the stoop of the shop that you're trying to go into. Right. That's that's kind of what you're looking for. Christine, uh, thank you so much for the $20 super chat. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much for that. Uh, with that, I want to wrap up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that I do, there's uh, quite a few ways you can actually support this show. One is by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you become a member of the Member Support Brigade, uh, you help me out in, in like the best way possible. And you get discounts that you get your money back. That's kind of how I designed the the the, uh, the the whole thing from day one. You know, there was no Patreon or anything like that, and I didn't want to put up a paywall. Certain content you get, certain content you don't. I didn't want to ask for donations, even like peppered over donations, where it's not a donation, but it really is just a donation. And so I thought, what, what can I do to bring so much value to people that even if they didn't like me, they should probably still buy my product? So I built a discount membership product. And I thought if you're listening to this show, you want seeds, you want tactical gear, uh, maybe you want herbal medications, et cetera. You want these types of things in your life, and you probably spend money on them. So I just went out and negotiated great discounts for you. You get your membership, you use your discounts, you get your money back. So consider becoming an MSB member today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Then the other way you can help support us, and this is a really great way too, because it doesn't have any outside uh, cost, like something you weren't going to spend money on anyway. Do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's just one of the pages on the website, tspaz.com. And while you're there, you can also look at all the items that I've reviewed. And if I've reviewed it and I put it in tspaz, 
I own it, I bought it, and I'd buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend you buy it. Today's item of the day, we're getting into the time of year where you need to be doing all your pruning and, and what have you and clearing up brush and stuff like that. These are made by Porter Cable. They're the nine-inch pruning reciprocating saw blades. Uh, there's a video here of a much heavier Jack, much heavier and younger Jack Spearco at my place in Arkansas demonstrating how to use a reciprocating saw in a lot of situations where a, a chainsaw is just flat-out overkill. And uh, the Porter Cable blades are simply the best ones I've found to do pruning with for the money because any reciprocating saw blade is a wear-out product. You can use, get quite a bit of use out of them, but they start to get dull. They're not worth sharpening. They start to bend. They start to you know, just kind of wear down, and so you don't want to have a lot of money into them. So when you have a product like this for 3 bucks a unit that does as much as it does and does it very well um, – I just think that it, it makes a lot of sense from a financial standpoint. And I want to, for those that are on the video anyway, I want to bring that screen back up real quick to explain why this works so gone good. Um, if, if you look at the blade itself right there and you look at the, the pattern of the teeth, if you know anything about bow saws, right? It looks like a bow saw, it looks like a miniature bow saw blade. And that's exactly what it is. Is it, kind of a universal pruning uh, uh, tooth pattern. And they're just fantastic. I also give you guys in that write-up uh, uh, some advice on if you don't own a reciprocating saw, if you want to standardize in DeWalt like I do, and I kind of bleed black and yellow, DeWalt makes a great line of brushless tools. But honestly, if you are small-scale homesteader, if you're the kind of person that does maybe a project every other month on building, you're not going to use your tools all the time like I do. Porter Cable, who makes the blade, also makes some damn decent uh, rechargeable tools. They're a 20 volt line. The one tool that I would say, if you if you want a really high quality uh, circular saw, skill saw that's cordless, Porter Cable skill saw is so underpowered it's pathetic. It really is. The rest of everything they make, it ain't as good as DeWalt or Milwaukee or Ryobi or something, but it's for the money, it's damn good. And you could always get a plug-in skill saw if you're kind of the light users that I'm talking about. Ryobi's good tools, Joe. I mentioned them. I wasn't I'm anti-Ryobi or anything. Uh, they're, they're good tools, too. Anyway, with that, I'm ready to wrap things up. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope it's got you excited about the coming spring. You know, we just had the Super Bowl and we had that weird halftime show with Rihanna with those weird people in their white poofy costumes. I have a theory on that, actually. Like, I've heard the whole, she was in red, it's satanic. I know this has nothing to do with today's so, like, I think it, honest to God, is the same reason that bridesmaids wear clothing that's, that's attractive but not super attractive. So you don't take away from the bride's day. So Rihanna's pregnant. I know this has nothing to do with today, right? But Rihanna's praise. I was talking to my son about this. I'm like, that halftime show was just stupid. And he's like, we liked it, but we, you know, it's a better. I don't think he said, I don't think you're the, this is my son said, I don't think you're the target demographic. Um, I'm like, when I heard that she was pregnant, though, I think she had to wear kind of poofy clothing, right? She wouldn't wear you know, like sexy Rihanna clothes. So they put everybody in poofy clothing. I think that's why they did that. And again, I don't even know why we're talking about that. Uh, but with that, I'm ready to wrap things up. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about homesteading on the small urban spaces. I've got a great guest that we'll have. Thursday, I'm like 90% that I'll be ready to do a show on biochar for you. I'm like 50% through with the, the, the presentation slides and PowerPoint. That one... 
if it doesn't happen Thursday, it'll be like it happens Tuesday next week or, or Thursday next week. It will be a podcast. But I will be giving you the value of a full workshop, something that you would pay for in a podcast. I, I always try to bring as much value to the table as I can. And I've had so many questions about this. I'm trying to pin it down to where, yes, it will be an introductory course. It won't be everything, but it will be all the things you need for the foundational knowledge to start using it uh, on your homestead and in your life. And, of course, Friday we'll have an expert counsel Q&A show. I need more questions for the expert counsel, guys. So get them into me if you haven't done so recently. Remember, TSPC expert in the subject line, email address, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. And anything for me, anything as a question for the show, anything like that at all, you can send it to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. Ecomouse has a question for me in all caps. I'll answer it before I go. By the way, best place to find duckweed in the shaded area of a pond with good windbreak or thanks. Uh, duckweed tends to like partial shade. You'll generally find it, especially if you've got flow in the pond with, with leaning winds toward the eastern shore. And if it's a calm area, because it'll get, I'm sorry, toward the, uh, yeah, toward the eastern shore, because the western shore, I'm sorry, because it will get shade in the afternoon. But I will tell you, duckweed, azola, illegal stuff like water hyacinths, all that stuff, eBay and Etsy. And just look for sellers with good reputations and make sure that what they're sending you is the thing you're ordering. I've had people say they ordered a Zola and got duckweed, uh, things like that. Make sure that you're looking at a picture of the item that they sell. Read the reviews. And if you if I need a water plant because I didn't overwinter it, eBay, eBay. And I don't care if it's like something that like you can't ship that. There's people on eBay that will ship that stuff. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Are they going to bail you out just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have.